Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome in. Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Ready to go. Getting started here with a big day of soccer talk for you. If you are a fan of the United States men's national team, we have a match to discuss, a 3-2 loss to Chile in Chile last night. The United States unveiling a 3-5-2 formation, at least for a half. Plenty to discuss on that front. In fact, we've grabbed Leander Shalakins from, uh, from, well, from everywhere. I forgot that uh, Leander is out on his own these days. We'll talk to Leander about the United States performance against Chile last night. We'll talk to him about perhaps some FIFA governance things in terms of the presidential candidates. There's a, there's a lot to talk about with Leander. We can touch on some of these MLS uh, rumors and news and notes, and, and, and that's what's going to lead our headlines this morning. Off the top, we'll work on some other things as well today, and the phone lines will be open for your reaction to the men's national team loss to Chile. But it's not just about a friendly in South America that may or may not mean anything. What do you take away from that performance? Those things are, are questions we'll have to try to answer today. But there's a little bit more happening. Let's let's start there. The United States loses three two to Chile. Goals from Sasha. Cle- I'm sorry. Wow, I get my wires crossed here. Goals from Brekshay, Surprisingly enough, wonderful ball from Matt Beasler and from Josie Altador on a lovely left lead off. Uh, le- uh, a lovely pass from Mixed Discrude. I think the new I think the new year and the the first game has thrown me for a loop. Mixed Discrude sets up Josie Altador for the second goal, but the United States could not hold that lead. Ultimately, they give up uh, two second half goals and lose three to two. And what does that mean? Who knows? Jurgen Klinsmann's going to try some stuff. That's what we take away from that match last night. Three man back line. Jermaine Jones, Matt Beasler just didn't have it together. They just didn't have the organization last night. If you saw that first goal, especially, seemed to be um, bred from a lack of communication, a lack of understanding. Just letting a marker go. Matt Beasler is better than that. And again, he had a wonderful assist for the opener in the sixth minute to Breck Shea. But from there, a little, it went a little sideways defensively. Breck Shea is on the left playing a wingback position. DeAndre Yedlin on the other side. Yeah, DeAndre Yedlin's fast. Did he, did he hold that spot down? He certainly did better than Breck Shea overall. Shea with the goal. But beyond that, some questions over the defensive stability of the team. What do you take away from that? And this is now a team that keeps losing. They can't seem to win a game. They've given up nine goals in the last three matches. How much does that bother you? How much should it bother Jurgen Klinsmann? Turning now to uh, international competition, the Ivory Coast advances to the Africa Cup of Nations quarterfinals. They won nothing win over Cameroon yesterday. Meanwhile, Mali and Guinea played to a 1-1 draw. And what that means and so they will draw lots to determine who will move on. Yes, that's what it's come down to in the African Cup of Nations in Group D, the drawing of lots. I, I did not check on the timing of that uh, event, so I'm not sure if they've held that or not. We'll check on that a little bit later. But it's, uh, it's a little ridiculous when you get down to that drawing of lots to determine who's moving on. There's not some sort of tiebreaker you can use. They're tied on everything. Really, I guess all of the one, all of the statistics that matter—goals for, goals against—in terms of uh, 
Goal differential, obviously, that's equal. So here we go with the drawing of lots. It just it, it may be a reality that uh, you have to deal with, but it is a, a little sad. I did uh, I did have a slip of the tongue and said Sasha Kleshton. He is in the news. He has signed officially with the New York Red Bulls. Remember, the Red Bulls traded away Ambrose Iyongo and Eric Alexander to the Montreal Impact in order to jump up to the top allocation spot so that they could grab Sasha Kleshton. And now you're looking at a Red Bull team. While they have stated clearly that they're going to have a youth movement and they're going to bring in some younger players into the rotation, is going to go with a Dax McCarty Sasha Kleshton midfield. I don't see what else they would be doing with this move. And there's nothing wrong with that midfield. It's certainly one of the more competitive midfields in MLS. Does that work for you in terms of the youth movement? If you're going to go youth movement, do you sell out on that? Or is Sasha Kleshton the kind of player you want in your team? Is it a half measure? That's what I'm a little worried about from a New York Red Bulls perspective. I also saw rumors, and this is uh, not necessarily a news headline, but I also saw a report that Matt Miazga has been returned to the New York Red Bulls from Red Bull Leipzig. He may not be making that move after all. If he is a New York Red Bull in 2015, Matt Miazga should get some playing time. Uh, we would like to see that. If you're going to go youth movement, what better player to represent that movement than Matt Miazga, a U-20 international? Harry Kane scored twice to lead Spurs to a 3-2 aggregate win over Sheffield United in the League Cup semis yesterday. Tottenham now advances to the final. Uh, the Tottenham in the League Cup, this seems about, in the League Cup final, seems about right <laughs> where they are. I don't want to take shots. Spurs, a team that uh, consistently strives to jump into the top echelon and can't ever seem to quite get there. But Harry Kane is a fantastic player, a brilliant player. And what you have to wonder, whether you're a Spurs fan or not, is if we're looking at the second coming of Gareth Bale, and I don't mean in terms of how good he is. He's certainly a good player. Whether he's on that level remains to be seen. But in terms of eventual sale, although I hear that Harry Kane and Spurs are working on a new contract, at some point, it's going to be impossible for them to hold on to him if somebody comes in with a big money offer. And this team is uh, is one now that, that squarely relies on Harry Kane, who sort of emerged from nowhere, or at least emerged from the reserves bench, to become a central figure for Tottenham in 2015. Uh, in uh, Also in cup action, Barcelona beat Atletico Madrid 3-2 on aggregate. Sorry, 4-2 on aggregate yesterday. With a with a three two win at the Vincente Calderon, Atletico Madrid melted down in that game. Went down to nine men. There was a th shoe throwing incident. Who was that? Adon's shoe came off. He threw it at the linesman. Honestly, who throws a shoe? And it got a yellow card. Did he get cautioned for it? At least got a yellow card for it. I don't know. If you throw a shoe, we know what your intent is. There's no question about that. We see we have these 50-50 challenges. We have elbows in 50-50 uh, aerials. We have, you know, did he really mean to do that? Did he kick out at his opponent? Did he do this? Did he do that? I don't think there's any question <laughs> when you throw a shoe. We're, we're not talking. There's no, <laughs> there's no doubt about what you meant to do. And at the official, at the linesman, come on. Come on. Are we talking serious ban here? 
I know it's it's ridiculous and humorous for us to watch him throw the shoe. But consider the spirit of it. You do anything to make contact with the referee, contact with an official, linesman, fourth official, or otherwise. There's got to be some sort of significant penalty for that. You got to set a precedent. Neymar started in that game, scored two goals. So there you go. Barcelona threw to the semifinals of the Copa del Rey with that win. And I don't know that I mentioned this. It should have included it in the headline as well. Headlines as well. Ronaldo given a two-match ban for his incident against Cordoba in which he kicked out, threw a punch. He really wasn't punished for the punch. Just for the kick out. Seems a little light. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, we will review USA Chile with Leander Shalakins. Maybe talk some FIFA presidential race. Whatever else comes to mind, it is Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Stay right there. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning. Going to talk to Leander Sherlackins in just a second. First, let me make a correction. I did say Harry Kane scored some goals. He did not score any goals yesterday against Sheffield United. That was Christian Eriksen, who is uh, another very, very good player and a player that uh, our our guest right now knows very well from his Ajax days. Uh, Leander Sherlackins on the line. Hi, Leander. Hey Jason, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's uh, it feels like it should be Friday. It's not. It's Thursday. We have a United States match to talk about. Their first one of the year against Chile. They lose three to two. The 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 takeaways here. Uh, there are a lot of them, I suppose. But for for a lot of us, Leander, the first thing that that comes to mind is the fact that Jurgen Klinsmann decided to trot out a three five two at least to start, at least for the first forty five minutes. Uh, experimental. Um, he plays Jermaine Jones at the center of the three center back uh, formation. He's got a couple of of guys who may or may not be suited to play wing back. Certainly, Breck Shea comes to mind. What did you make of this experiment, at least in terms of what it was meant to do? Defensive stability wasn't there. It, it wasn't. And what's interesting about the three five two or the five three two or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it is that Louis van Gaal, the, the Dutch national team coach at the, at the last World Cup, actually used it to solidify his defense uh, because he'd lost Kevin Strootman, who was sort of his box-to-box guy, who did a lot of work shielding the defense. And he said, you know what, I don't have the defenders to go to a World Cup if I'm going to play a four-man back line. So he, he added an extra guy, and sometimes it was Dirk Kuyt. It was very unconventional, but it sort of worked for him um, because it did help sort of have that, that threesome of defenders centrally and then to have the wing backs who can sort of drop back a lot and then to still have two central midfielders who can help out. Um, so I don't know if that's what Jurgen's thinking was. I actually thought it looked pretty exciting, uh, especially that early goal by Breck Shea where you could see sort of the value of having those wing backs where you can create overload situations very quickly up front mm-hmm. when those guys are sort of shuttling forward. And, uh, and that's what happened when Matt Beasler hit Shea with a really great pass and Shea finished it stupendously, uh, which unfortunately was, was really the, the last major thing he would do in the game. But, um, yeah, defensively it looked a little shaky, but maybe I have to give them a little bit of slack there because, A, you know, all these players are pretty much in their offseason. Uh, B, Jermaine Jones is, is very much not a defender historically. 
and and I'm not quite sure that he has the temper temperament to be a defender because he does sort of have that one big screw up a game, um, which which is fine when you're posted sort of 20 or 30 yards further away from your own goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's not fine necessarily, but it, but it can be less damaging. Um, and this was an entirely new scheme. So, you know, defensively, it didn't look great. There were marking issues, as there have often been. But I thought going forward, it showed real promise in the first half until they just totally ran out of gas in the second well, half. Well, I mean, it, it, this is about, now, it, it is the first friendly of the year. It is January camp, which is traditionally experimental, at least from a player standpoint. Um, but it's, it should be about some sort of balance. I mean, it, I, I don't know, but I don't know if that's what Klinsman was trying to do, but what we saw yesterday was that it, no matter what formation you play, and we get, we get hung up on these, on these numbers, Leander, it's more about the, the personnel and what they do in those spots than anything else. Breck Shea not built to be a guy who's going to track back and, and play solid one-on-one defense. And we saw that. There was plenty of, uh, plenty of times that Breck Shea's having to defend in his box and it just, it, it gave you it gave you hives because you thought it was going to turn into a disaster. It did on, on on a couple of occasions. So what we're talking about here is really about the the, the personnel rather than the formation. Yeah, I think so, and, and that's always true when you're talking about formations. But it does sort of indicate a starting point, and it does sort of indicate an intention. And I think it did here as well, where Jones really was supposed to be that third central defender rather than a guy who sort of slides further up in a, in a Sergio Busquets type role. Mm. And, and the wingbacks really were supposed to cover the entire wings all by themselves, which I think was, was a little bit ambitious in retrospect. Maybe Bobby Wood, the striker next to, next to Josie Altidore, was supposed to sort of slide out wide the way Arjen Robin did for Holland next to Robin van Persie. But... Um, I think the spirit of of that system was was pretty well uh, indicated by the formation. But what what, I, what my real takeaway was with this formation is that three and a half years into his tenure, Jurgen seems like he's almost starting from scratch yeah. in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's talked a lot about culture and building depth and all that, and he's done that to an extent. But what I find really interesting is that he's just you know trying entirely new things. And and we can't read too much into the result, and, and some people are a little bit panicked that the U.S. has only won one of its nine games. Uh, Paul Carr, ESPN's uh, Stats Buddha, just had a had an interesting stat up saying that in, in those friendlies since the World Cup, the U.S. has uh, uh, scored seven times in the first half and never in the second, and conceded twice in the first half and nine times in the second. And, you know, the, those those things are interesting but it is post-World Cup. This was a weird camp. He sort of called in a, a pseudo-under-23 senior team. Um, it was a little bit of a mix. And, and what I just find really interesting is that, you know, th- this was pretty different, what we saw uh, tactically from, from some of the stuff we've seen in the past. So I think in a lot of ways, Jurgen has sort of embraced the new cycle as a clean slate and maybe he has a, and I said this in my Yahoo column last night, maybe he feels like he can sort of um, really start to build and really start to coach now. Because when he took over for Bob Bradley, I think it, to a large extent he was at first maybe a little bit in damage control where the national team had gotten into a rut and he had some things to set right, and then he went right into World Cup qualifying mm. and then the World Cup. So maybe 
he has much more of an opportunity now to really build something. How much does per- per- perception matter, do you think, to Jurgen Klinsmann? I mean, I, I get the sense that, you know, you just spat out those stats. One in, one in their last nine. They gave up. Uh, here's another Paul Carr stat. Or no, this is uh, from actually, um, well, Paul Carr tweeted it. was from Paul Kennedy originally. Three goals in three games for the first time, uh, in or, th- or nine goals total in three games for the first time since 1993. For a lot of people, this is going to look like regression, whether he is trying new things that may ev- eventually be effective or not. Does that matter to him? Should it matter to him? Should it matter to U.S. soccer? And what should the fans do about it? I think it matters to him. I mean, as you know, as as national team beat reporters, you you spend time around the coach after he loses a game, and Jurgen does not like to lose games, um, what, no matter how insignificant they are. And you know, m- maybe that that's the old German 1980s 1990s mentality where they would win at all costs. But certainly, he's he's not uh, he's not happy when they lose. Um, nor are the fans, and nor should they be. But that's that balance that you have to strike. I mean, I think we can all recognize that the U.S. national team still has some strides to make to get where it's going. So, you know, you you have to, to an extent, be willing to sacrifice short-term results for long-term gains. I think Jurgen has the mandate to do that. I mean, obviously, his contract was renewed through 2018. He's now also the Federation Sporting Director. So I don't know that anybody at U.S. soccer is panicking over this. Chile, while it was a B team, is a really deep program, as we saw last night. And even in their domestic league, they have some really good players. Um, that wasn't at all a bad team. It's, it's not like the U.S. was, you know, was beaten by Antigua or someone like that. Um, so I don't know that they're panicked about it. I, I can sort of understand the fans, um, the, the fans' reluctance to accept this at face value, but. You know, ultimately, this is a long slog, and and the the only truth in soccer, in international soccer, I think, is how you do at the World Cup. This is absolutely true. Now, I I wonder if he's built up enough faith in his methods and his coaching ability, though, from the last World Cup, which we saw as uh, a very, I mean, I'll use the word again, a very regressive World Cup in, in terms of the way that they played. Now, maybe he was forced into that. But we all go back to the beginning and say, well, he was forced into that because of some of the decisions that he made. So does he have, uh, does, should we as fans standing here watching this team go through a losing streak and, and playing occasionally fun soccer, but ultimately ineffective in terms of the scoreline soccer? Should we have the faith that he's going to figure this out? Because it's okay to experiment, but we all want some sort of belief that he's going to actually get it right when it matters. Yeah, well, I think the things you look for when the results aren't there are progress. Um, and, and to be fair, that's not always been there. And I think when, when he tried out his 3-5-2 yesterday, if, you know, if, if we want to designate it by its formation, if we, when he tried out sort of a new style or a variation on his old style, there were some good results in the first half. Um, and then in the second half, like I said, you know, the, the team clearly was, was in off-season shape and they had no match rhythm and, and it sort of stopped being a game from the U.S.'s perspective and, and just a case of trying to control the damage. Um, so from that sense, there were flourishes there and there were some signs for optimism. But I, I would understand fully if fans would expect to see a lot more of those signs um, sort of when, it, when a national team head coach is three and a half years into his yes, tenure. right. Absolutely. Now, now, look, again, those flashes, I mean, uh, Altidore's goal was – a well-crafted team goal. Enjoyed that one a lot. You obviously mentioned already Beasler's ball 
to Breck Shea, which he took uh, like a guy who actually has been playing and scoring, which he, we know he has not. Um, so there, it, it, there are some, there are, this is what Klinsman has done, Leander, that I find fascinating. He builds in an, enough of this deny, plausible deniability about where the team should be or how they should play in a game like that. So that if they lose, well, we're working on it. We're experimenting. We're trying things out. We've got players who are out of shape and out of season and out of form, which he calls in. Potentially, you could argue to give them time and give them an opportunity to get back into form. But if they win, then, of course, he looks good anyway. So he gets to have it both ways. In a sense, yeah. But but I, I don't know necessarily that he claims all the credit if he does win that game. Um it's 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 really hard to gauge a national team, you know, when when you're three and a half years removed from the from the next World Cup, and you know you you don't want to read too much into results, but you do want to see something tangible out on the field that you can sort of hang your hopes on as a fan, I think. But um, yeah, with, with Jurgen in that sense, very much remains an enigma. I mean, I think he even does to to a lot of the guys like you and me that have been around the national team and that have covered it. And that still don't really quite understand what um, what it is that he's doing exactly. It's a fascinating process for the U.S. men's national team. Now, before we move on, uh, did you have, and this is what I tend to do with these friendlies, rather than look at the at the team result, especially when you have sort of a patchwork of players who are in various uh, various conditioning uh, situations and in various form. Did you pick out any individual performances that you thought were 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 good or and how much does the system, the system play into how you evaluate a player's performance? Well, you, you do have to consider that because the context is always important. Um, I was really encouraged by Josie Altador. Um, I, I, you know, the, the goal obviously was nice, but aside from that, I mean, I, I think with Josie, we've, we've started to understand a long time ago that you can't just judge him on goals um, because he, he's such a form striker, and if, if, that's, if that's a thing. Um, but I was encouraged sort of by how he got involved and how he moved and how he sort of was able to hold up the ball at times. And, and then that finish, like I said, was, was very nice. Um, I thought Michael Bradley looked really good. He, he, I don't know that we've seen that Michael Bradley in a little while. Maybe he's, he's sort of getting healthier after he had some, some uh, injury issues. But he, he was all over the field and he was helpful and he was, uh, he, he was sort of, allowed to run wide and, and really roam the way he did before Jurgen had sort of moved him further up the field. Um, so I thought that was encouraging. Um, I thought Breck Shea scoring a goal while the rest of his game was, was very forgettable and, and at times just outright bad. Um, I thought that was encouraging because here's a guy who's, who's such a prospect for the U.S., or was anyway, um, who still, I think, holds so much potential to be getting that goal, I think, was important. Um, Nick Romando, as usual, was super solid. I mean, you know, the guy concedes three goals, but at the same time, if you know, another goalkeeper might have let in five or six. I mean, he made some great saves and some great reaction uh, reflexes and things like that. Um, I, I'm probably forgetting some guys, but mm-hmm. I thought Steve Birnbaum didn't look bad at all. Yeah. Um, I thought Yedlin had some had some good moments. I think that wingback role is is really well suited to him. Those are the guys that stood out for me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. We'll put this uh, put this game aside. It is the first friendly of the year. They play Panama 
in uh, in about a week uh, in California, I believe, is where that game is. I'm not. I, I haven't really checked. I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to get worked up about these games, Leander. And when they come around, I'll pay attention. But you sort of yeah. forget they're even happening because they are. They are such. A, they are at the very, very beginning of the cycle. All right. But while I have you here, I think it's important for us to to touch on um, some world issues, and and mostly, uh, most directly, what I'm talking about is the FIFA presidential race. In the last couple of days, we've seen a rash of of new entrants into this race. We know Seb Blatter's uh, the favorite still. He's the incumbent. He's already he's already announced his uh, his run. He's he what. Apparently won't disclose the five countries that uh, make up his nominating collection, although I don't think he's wanting uh, for volunteers. Meanwhile, we have a, a sort of a motley crew of guys. You've got uh, David Ginola, who's backed by a betting concern. You have Luis Figo, who may also be backed by a, a betting concern. Van Prague from, uh, from Holland is a guy that uh, certainly has the chops to do the job. But what I wonder here is if we're watching... Um, these candidates, and I'm, I'm, miss, I'm forgetting uh, Prince uh, Prince Hussein as well. Are we missing? Uh, the, uh, you know, are we looking at a situation where the the votes just going to be split, and Blatter is going to have his base, and and we're going to be look, you know, we're going to wake up in a couple months, and it's going to be Sep again. Well, I, I think there's two things to note there. Um, the the favorites, other than Sepp Blatter, up until now were Michael van Praag, um, the the Dutch. Federation president and former president of Ajax during during sort of their 90s heyday, um, and Prince Ali were sort of considered to be the most viable options against Sep. I mean, Ginola we can't really take seriously. I think even Mino Raiola, uh, the the very outspoken and weird agent of Mario Balotelli and uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, uh, fittingly, uh, has even made noises about running. I don't think we can take him seriously, obviously. Um, so it was assumed that it would be between Ali and uh, Ali Hussein and uh, Michael van Praag. And so what people were saying is that what they would probably do is they'd sort of have their campaigns, and at some point one of them would capitulate in order to, to reconcile their votes and have a better chance of, of dethroning Blatter. I think Luis Figo might throw a little bit of a wrench into that because nobody really saw his candidacy coming even though he has his five nominations, or says he does, and today's the deadline, by the way, I think, for uh, presenting those nominations. Yeah, that's today. Um, so I don't know how he fits into that picture. I don't know if he's talked to the other guys, if he'd be willing to drop out, if, if the, between the three of them they can sort of get together and say, all right, well, the important thing here is for someone other than Seb Blatter to be president, how are we going to go about this? But then it's always important to note that the discontent with Blatter is not something that the entire world shares with us. It's, it's something that's felt, I think, mostly by, by the countries that have been spurned for a World Cup and feel that that was wrongly so, uh, with some merit, and sort of Western Europe. But he's, he's still really popular with federations in the rest of the world because he, he does what good dictators do. He spreads the wealth. He makes sure everybody gets theirs. And, and that's how he stays in power. Um, so all of these small federations have been getting so much money from him for years and years and years. And I just don't think that they're going to vote against him. I think they're happy the way things are. Um, they're not maybe as worried about governance as we are. And it, you've got entire confederations that he's got in his pocket. So however the Europeans managed to, the Europeans and Prince Ali managed to sort of divvy up their votes um, I just don't see there being enough to to unseat Seth. Uh, you know, there's um, 
I, you know, I'm trying to think of the the analogy. We have a history in this country, in particular in a couple cities, and I won't identify one specifically of of mayors who the rest of the country views as corrupt. Maybe even gotten in trouble once or twice, but they have they have a very loyal constituency because, like you said, they've spread the wealth, they've done things for their community, they've taken care of people at home. Now that's a little different in this situation. The fact that Sepp's constituency is is nominally the world, but there are areas of the world. There are, are entire blocks, entire confederations who are, I don't want to say they're in Sep's pocket. They are beholden to Sep because Sep has done things for them. And it's difficult for those of us who sort of stand here in judgment and aren't benefiting from suckling at Sep's teeth to understand that relationship. Yeah, no, and, and that's exactly it. And, you know, he, he did what, what all good despots do, and he made the barriers to entry into any political race a little higher. Um, by quietly passing, I don't know that he passed it directly, but if he didn't, then sort of his cronies did, passing a new rule in 2013 that instead of one nomination, you needed five nominations, and to have spent two out of the last five years in soccer. And I don't know if that was designed to to keep guys like Grant Wall uh, from running, but I think it might be more so aimed at making sure that a popular political figure who suddenly starts jonesing for a role in soccer or something like that doesn't suddenly um, step in the soccer and unseat him. So he's made it a little bit harder to run, which also keeps out guys like Gino Lai. I just can't imagine that he'll get those five nominations. Um, So by doing that and and by continuously just feeding those smaller smaller nations and confederations, because what we forget is while the English FA, say, or U.S. soccer or – the Spanish Federation or whoever might be some of the louder ones in soccer, they get one vote. And Antigua and, and Barbuda gets gets one vote as well. Um, so in that sense, it's it's a it's a very fair democracy. And just because the, the loud federations are against you doesn't mean that all the other ones aren't going to vote for you. Absolutely. And there's the the added element here that um, the countries that, that will that nominate uh, opponents for Sepp Blatter on some level, probably believe that they risk retribution for doing so. And it, it takes somebody stepping out on a limb here, uh, backing somebody else in order to uh, in order to even get another candidate into the race. You didn't mention Jerome Champagne, who I, I think we all see right. as uh, yeah. sort of just a, 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 a you know, a, a, a SEP sort of guy who's going to maybe clear out some of the riffraff um, with his candidacy and flesh out some of this and, and probably, you know, again, get none of the vote or very little of the vote. Uh, so, uh, we, we could do this all day. I don't want to make this all about FIFA. Before I let you go, Leander, uh, you're, you're all over the place now. I'm sort of doing my, uh, my search here as, we, as we're talking about this. You got a piece on the Red Bulls and the fans' re- uh, re- uh, rebellion at, New York, at the New York Times. You got stuff all over Yahoo Sports. Um, what, are you, uh, what are you writing about next? Where can we find your work? Um, well, I've got something uh, something a little bit longer coming out on uh, Jean-Marc Bosman of the famous Bosman arrest um, for soccer gods that's going to be out pretty soon that I'm excited about. I'm writing regularly for Yahoo. I've got some more things in the pipeline for the Times that I can't necessarily talk about. Sorry, I'm going to be doing occasionally some stuff for American soccer now. Um, I've, I've got some things cooking that... Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know that I can share a whole lot about. But, <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I'll be all over. All right, so be on the lookout for the Bosman piece at Soccer Gods. Uh, they're doing good stuff down uh, with that site um, from the uh, the Fusion Network and uh, New York Times and Yahoo Sports and everything else. Leander, appreciate your time as always. Thanks a lot.
My pleasure, Jason. All right, let's take a break when we come back. Looks like we're going to have open phone lines. If you have a thought on the U.S. loss to Chile or anything else that's in the news today, make sure you jump on the line, 347-756-6276. Hit us up at Soccer Morning on Twitter. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Back on Soccer Morning. Thanks again to Leander Shalakins for joining us, talking USA Chile, some FIFA presidential race, which probably won't be much of a race in the end. Yes, we're all very sad about that. But it, your life won't really change. FIFA will continue to be corrupt. SEP will continue to be in charge. Life will go on. The World Cup will continue to be a corporate schmooze fest. That does not benefit the host cities, the host countries. That's just the way it goes. Hopefully, FIFA wakes up a little bit and sees uh, sees what they're doing, and we get some sort of so, uh, some sort of fixing of these issues. But I don't expect it to come anytime soon. Certainly not through this presidential race. All right, phone lines are open three four seven seven five six six two seven six. We can talk about the USA loss to Chile last night, whether or not this bothers you and whether or not this bad run in terms of wins and losses bothers you as a USA fan, whether or not the shipping of goals, especially in the second half, bothers you. Paul Carr, the aforementioned Paul Carr, is on Twitter right now sharing stats, making jokes, well, kind of. His last tweet said, the last time he shared a video, the last time the United States, United States scored in the second half. And it was video, uh, <laughs> it was video of the goal against Ghana in the World Cup, in the first game of the World Cup from John Brooks. It's John Brooks. It's John. That's the last time the United States scored in the second half. So what does that mean exactly? Again, you have to throw some of your expectations out out the window when it's friendly season, when it's um, when the new cycle begins, and the head coach's mandate is to try new stuff. We're going to try some stuff, see if it comes off. In this case, a three five two five three two, whatever. Again, for me, the issue is personnel. I got no, I got no problem with Bradley and Mix. Maybe Bobby Wood's not my starter, but okay. So those are your forwards, Altidore and Wood. Yedlin on one side. Breck Shea, eh, as a a wingback with something of a defensive responsibility against a team like Chile who presses, presses, presses. That's one thing I didn't get to with Leander. When When you are deciding to play this particular formation and you want your... You want those overloads wide. You want to create those opportunities. You want to send your wingbacks up and down the flank. But you've got the other team pushing at you. Using those, you, uh, using those gaps, exploiting those gaps that are behind those wingbacks to find acres of space on the outside. And then victimizing 
your center backs, who again are not used to this system and have not figured out how to mark in it. I mean, bad marking is bad marking. How much do you put on the system? I don't know. 401, you're on the air. Hey, man, how's it going? This is Julian in Providence. What's going on, Julian? Uh, well, not too much. Um, you know, first off, actually, I've been able to listen to the show before now, but um, <clears throat> I just want to say that um, Beasler's pass, I thought, was great on the Breck Shea goal. Um, it seems like, I mean, I think the announcer did say, like, perfectly weighted, and I think it really was. It was a beautiful pass. Yes, absolutely. Perfect pass. And we all thought, oh, look, look at this thing's working. Breck Shea's getting up the wing, and he's finding, he's finding space, and look how good that pass was from Beasler. And we didn't even have to go through the midfield, and maybe that's not the prototypical goal. Maybe you want a little bit more intricacy from your attacking, uh, uh, your attacking group. But still, hey, sixth minute, we're not going to complain about that. And then they give up a goal four minutes later, and we're in this, okay, is this thing really working situation? Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's not fool's gold. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a great goal. Um, and also, I think, I think um, you know, with a single uh, brash face bomb, uh, Brexit, I think, like overtook Charlie Davies in the the celebration power rankings. Uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know if you saw Breck's uh, celebration. Yeah, but. yeah. What was that? I didn't think. I don't think my brain processed what he was doing there. <laughs> it was pretty glorious. I got I, I got to give it up to him. Uh, to my cap. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I was I feel good about the team after that, and it's it's unfortunate we keep losing. But I, I thought it was. You know there were bright spots. Do you, was, do you, you know you do you feel good about Jurgen Klinsmann and his direction of the team? Because I mean, it, this is it. The, the U.S. Soccer has given him full control now. He's not just the head coach; he's the technical director. He's he's got his hands in every pie, and here he's coming out in the new cycle and throwing a an entirely new system up against the wall. Are you are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I mean it is. <laughs> it, it's a it's a, a bit scary thinking thinking of Jurgen's complete control, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, at least it's exciting, you know. Like, I, at, at least he, he's you know striving for you know to to you know really not revolutionize, but you know change the way we play. Um, I, I've I've been as critical of him as anyone, but I'm okay with it. I think uh, you know we could. I think we could pass the ball around more. So well, I mean, that was the other issue. Yesterday, the United and this is what Altador said after the game. They couldn't control. They couldn't hold the ball. And, and and so much of what so much of your problems as a as a team, unless you are going to bunker in, unless you're going to play a strategic a strategically defensive game, anytime you can't keep the ball, you're going to be in trouble. And, and especially with the speed and the counterattacking abilities of Chile, they flew up the field. And you watched the United States scramble. You watched Jermaine Jones whose instinct is, oh, I got the ball, I'm just going to go wandering up into the attacking third, or I'm going to go try you know, try to drive through midfield. At least once, Jermaine, it was probably more than once, Jermaine Jones had absolutely horrible turnovers in midfield. Not where he's supposed to be. Their, their mandate was to play the ball out of the back. You could see that. They weren't supposed to be playing long balls. But Jermaine Jones, can't if he's in the center of a three-center-back setup, he's got to be much smarter about it than that. Yeah, those were uh, uh, Chandler-level blunders, those uh, turnovers, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, there were there were moments where it was almost a little depressing to have Jurgen, like, so you could almost clearly hear him screaming out, you know, pass it around, move it forward. 
while you could, while, you know, you see them struggling to do it. And it's like, is he trying to, um, uh, you know, is, is he, is he asking too much, you know, but, but then, but then they score a beautiful goal. So I don't know. I felt it was just nice to see moments of offensive brilliance, uh, which we don't always see. So appreciate the phone call, Julian. I'm glad to hear a positive take. Twitter is a wash with negativity, with snark, with hate. There is no self-hating fan base that is as vocal as the United States. I mean, I don't know. I live in a bubble, of course. Maybe other nations have this as well. Maybe they have this this problem as well. But you, it, it depresses me to be on Twitter during a USA friendly, not a, not an not an important match. Important matches. If the United States, if there's mistakes happening, if things aren't working, of course, throw out all of that negative stuff. I mean, that's what fans do. We get upset. We get angry. We get mad about our team not performing well enough. But in a friendly in Chile. With this particular makeup of a team, to have all of this, just I don't know. I think that you think that the world would was ending. You think that the United States, you know, was was back in 1985 again. I, sure, express yourself however you like. I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm just going to have to avoid Twitter during national team games. Three four seven seven five six six two seven six. We've got breaking news out of New York City. Now this is. Probably boring for a lot of people, but I think it's interesting in the in the image again of New York City uh, Football Club. Tom Pernetti, who I, I'm not positive on his title. He may have been chief business officer. He may have been president. Tom Pernetti, who, who was formerly the Rutgers athletic director and took this job as New York City FC, I think last year, as they were getting ready to, to move towards 2015 in their launch, he's out. He left. He's gone. He's moved to IMG. On, on, they play their first match in six weeks, five weeks, and he's gone. Tom Glick takes over as club president. His quote, the role for this club is arguably one of the most exciting in soccer right now. I am thrilled to take up the responsibility and the challenge. After two years of laying the foundations for this inaugural season and beyond, we have an incredibly talented team on both on and off the pitch. I very much look forward to playing my part in the leading and supporting them as we embark on the next and most important stage of our development. And there's a quote from Pernetti, too. Something about, you know, my true passion was something else. It's time for me to move on. This is an op- this is a great opportunity to to go to IMG, dude. Maybe you put this squarely on Tom Pernetti's shoulders, but NYCFC continues to put forth this faith. I'm not saying that the team is going to be bad on the field. I believe in Jason Christ. I think they've got some talent. Clearly, David Villa can score some goals. They got mixed disc screw to pull the strings. There's there, there's stuff here. There's talent here. Outwardly facing the public is a disaster. You you botched the Frank Lampard situation. It, it just I I don't know. I don't know. T- David, you're on the line. What's up? Hey, Jason. Did I hear you say suckling on Seth's teeth? <laughs> did I gross you out a little bit? You, did you do a spit take, David? Yeah. You, my friend, are a tortured genius, just like Brian Wilson. But anyway, uh, good stuff there. 
I, I, no, I, yeah. I was very I was very encouraged by the game yesterday, to be quite frank with you. Um, the fact that they got worked in the second half shouldn't be a surprise, I really think, to anybody. I mean, I'm just disappointed that Jurgen switched back to what appeared to be a 4-4-2 for the second half. Yeah. I would have liked to see him try that during the whole game. Maybe maybe the guys just weren't good enough shape to do it, but... It didn't matter anyway because they had the same problem with the 4-4-2. Well, you, look, look. I said this when we when we previewed this match with Kyle, uh, with with um, why am I blanking? Yeah, what when I preview this match, I apologize. When I previewed this match yesterday morning, I said if you look at the personnel, if they play a three-five-two, there's only certain guys that fit in certain places. Meaning you don't have many options. There was nobody else to play left wing back. It was Breck Shea or nobody. That's why he went 90 minutes. Or did he come off eventually? And they, well, he came off when they went to the 4-4-2. Whatever. There, well, there was no, only... My, my, so go no, go ahead. No, you know, my problem is with, with Jermaine Jones. I, I just don't... I don't think he's fit for that position. Um, no. And, and I, I think... I don't know if it would have been different if, like, Omar Gonzalez was there. No. Or, or no. there's some other guys. But I just don't think he's right for that position. And... You know, I'm going to have to probably watch the second half again because I really respect Leander and his business, his, uh, his opinions. But I didn't think the burn bomb guy, I thought he looked horrible. I really? thought he looked completely out of his element. Like he was playing at a level above him, you know, and that, that, that was, uh, that, that was what I thought about him. So maybe I'll have to watch the second half again. But, but anyway, I'm just encouraged by the three by two. I thought we looked good at it. And yes, there are problems in the back and there's going to be teething problems, but, I hope this isn't just like a one-off. I hope Jurgen, you know, continues to look at this. Well, but he's uh, got to he's got to find the right guys, David. As you mentioned, I'm not sure. Jermaine, yeah, I know. I'm not sure Jermaine Jones is fit for that position. At least not with his instincts, with his natural inclinations. And I don't think there's another guy in the pool that Klinsman trusts enough to hand those keys to. I, you could, I saw some people arguing that Jeff Cameron would be better suited for that role. And I don't know that I disagree with that. I, I think mobility is somewhat important, but you also want a guy who's an organizer. That's not Jermaine Jones. He's not, he, he is a, he's the, the prototypical bull in a china shop. He wants to bounce around. He wants to cause problems. He wants to get stuck in. He wants to have the ball and bomb forward. And you cannot have that guy who is so central to your defensive structure bombing up the field. At, at one point, we watched Jermaine Jones go on a 60 yard run. And I think everybody, even if he was successful, the, the entire, uh, soccer watching public was pulling their hair out going what are you doing if the ball goes the other direction we're screwed and it happened on well, multiple occasions well yeah but the thing is is you have to have a flexible enough system and intelligent enough players that know okay there goes Jermaine I need to slot back and cover his his space sure I mean this is what the Dutch do when they're running the 4-3-3 I when they're running that. it correctly I realize you gotta that. have people moving around and cover for each okay, other. so it's a matter of trust, then. It's a matter of understanding, and I think it was pretty clear that there was a lack of understanding. These guys have may, maybe they've been training with it for a couple of months, but is there one guy on that field whose club side plays a three-man back line? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, you know, and, and it, it, at various points, I mean, we're, we're, again, I, I saw this on Twitter. I apologize. I don't have the person who's uh, who who put it out there because I would love to give them credit. Someone said. That Jurgen Klinsmann has given one guy uh, the the freedom to play total football, and it's Jermaine Jones. Everybody else is supposed to work in within the system. And the problem with that, and it's a joke, obviously, but the problem with that is, again, as you mentioned, 
Now people have to cover for Jones or cover that space. Look, that's a that's a regular thing that players have to do in any system. Cover the space. But if you are not familiar with the system, if you don't know where that space is supposed to be and who's supposed to be there because it's not instinctual or it's not drilled into your head from hours and hours of training, then you're going to have those gaps. So all it takes, especially against a side like Chile, with their Bielsian uh, mandate, with their Bielsian tendencies, all it takes is one little gap, and boom, you're in trouble. And we saw it. Right, right. You know, the, the other, one last point I'll make is that unlike other camp strudels, as you call it, uh, camps, I don't think there's that many European guys who are going to make a huge difference here. I mean, this is close to an A squad that we uh, saw yesterday, in my opinion. No. I, I, I don't know if you agree or not. No, well, no, who, who I, are we I, talking I, about? Jeff Cameron? And I can't think of anybody else. Well, I, 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 significant. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it an A squad, right? I would look. Jeff Cameron would certainly be in the team. Omar Gonzalez would be in the team. Uh, Kyle Beckerman maybe would still be in this team, although you could worry about that if that's a if that's really the direction you want to go in with his age. He's still effective. Um, th- there are yeah, Fabian Johnson would be in there. Uh, let's see. In fact, Nolan on Twitter, he said, no need for too much negativity. Garza for Shea, Fabian Johnson for Yedlin, maybe. Uh, you, then you can have Yedlin off the bench. Lee Wynn for Wood. Okay, I'm not sure that that's a switch I would make. But there, look, there are some guys. There were some guys missing. Now, yeah, Aaron, yeah. Aaron Johansson would certainly get a call up if he yeah, was available. Sure. There's, it's, it, you could argue that this is a, an interesting January camp because he had Bradley and Dempsey and Altador yeah. and Discarude available to him and and you know guys like like Matt Hedges and, and Matt Beasler, but I don't know that you could call that an A squad by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, okay. I, I, you know, I, I'll say this. The one, uh, one thing I'll say is that two guys I would like to see in this system um, is Tim Ream and Eric Lehigh. I think Eric Lehigh could be. Uh, your left back or your right back in a system like this. He's got that sort of engine, and I, I think he would be ideal for this. I don't know if uh, – but he seems to have a phobia about Eric Lehigh, so uh, probably not going to see it anytime soon. Anyway, Jason, that's all. Thanks. I appreciate the phone call, David. Lots of interesting thoughts on the state of the U.S. national team. I, look, I, 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 I think it's – uh, man, it is it is very black and white for a lot of people. It's either you bu- you buy into what Klinsman is doing, and you believe that there's a possibility that this is going to be transformative, or that it will stick on some level, or it will be effective on some level, or you don't, or you think this is crap, and they are playing like crap, and they are losing games, and they are shipping goals, and damn it, fix it. Those are the only those are the only two opinions I seem to see. Now, you know, I- is there something in the middle? I don't think that Jurgen Klinsmann has done what he was supposed to do. That has been my long-held beef with him. That's what I had a problem with last summer. Not that Jurgen Klinsmann was a terrible coach. I don't think he's a terrible coach. I don't think he's a great coach. But it's not that Jurgen Klinsmann... My problem was he kept talking about these things he wasn't doing. That if you're going to be hired on the notion that you're going to change American soccer or change the U.S. soccer setup, so that it creates a more proactive team, a team that plays more exciting, forward-thinking soccer, a team that goes on the attack, a team that wants to take the game to the other team, then do that. Stop talking about it and show us. And he didn't show us in the World Cup. Now, there was 
plenty of there there's plenty of excuses to be made. Trevor says, "Don't you need the players to do that?" Yeah, you need the players to do that. I suppose that's the case. But again, the argument at the World Cup was if you needed Altidore to make it work, why didn't you have somebody to help fill in for Altidore? Or have some other system that could be somewhat effective. Again, I think that Jurgen Klinsmann is what most managers and head coaches are. They are conservative by nature. They talk a big game, but they're conservative by nature. And when push comes to shove, if you think Belgium's going to dominate the ball, then you put 10 men behind it. You get scared, and you think defense first. I think he's a very practical head coach in that regard. Like I said, he talks a big game. I don't care that he plays practical soccer if that's what it takes to win or that's what it takes to be competitive. I'm fine with that. I'm a practical guy. I think you play with the players that you got. But it's the talk that I had a problem with. Not the way he played, the the way he talked. Well, now he's finally, not finally, now he's doing something. And we've seen little hints of this over the course of three and a half years. Now he's doing something. Three, five, two, throw it out there. Wing it. See what happens. Get forward. Send your wingbacks up and down those flanks. Make something happen. And I saw glimpses. I saw interesting stuff happen last night. I don't know that it means the United States is going to be more competitive on the international stage in the next decade. I don't know if it means that they're a bigger threat at the World Cup to make the quarterfinals and semifinals. I don't know. But I do know that I enjoyed the Brexche goal. I know I enjoyed the Altador goal. I know that the defensive frailties are probably a function of the system, the lack of discipline on the part of Jermaine Jones, the inability to mark, which, hey, mark better. Mark better. Jason Keenley on Twitter. That's why I didn't want Klinsman as manager until this cycle. Pool was always going to limit what they could do last cycle. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm willing to sort of flush the feeling of the last World Cup. The last cycle. I say, hey, Jurgen, clean slate. Go do them some weird things. Go be weird and figure it out. And if you have to experiment, like I would rather him do this against Chile and lose 3-2. Put that 3-5-2 out there. Put guys in unnatural positions or new positions. Positions they may be suited for, but they haven't been experienced in. I'd rather him do that now than have him throw caution to the wind in the Gold Cup and, and lose to, I don't know, Panama in the semis. The 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 man or the ex- expectations change when we go from Chile in January to Gold Cup matches in June, and I I will change my expectations. All right, last call for phone calls three four seven seven five six six two seven six. You can hit us up on Twitter as well. Imaginary Turbo friend with a nice tip in as well. Alejandro Bedoya would certainly be in the A squad. Bedoya Johansson. Cameron, definitely three names who would be Fabian Johnson. You could argue about Timmy Chandler. You got Julian Green. Is he going to be making that that A squad moving forward? And then you've got guys, again, the, the U-20s have players who are probably close to contributing at the, at the A level. Or the B level, certainly. Who would be in this squad if they were available. 
This is the very weird camp because, again, because you have stalwarts like Bradley and Altador and Dempsey and Beasler and Jones mixed in with the other guys. Breck Shea, who hasn't played in a year and a half. It's, it's a strange makeup for this team. Steve Birnbaum, who has one year of professional soccer experience under his belt. It was a good year, but he's, he's raw. Certainly at that level. So it, it's a very weird camp, which makes it very we- very difficult to assess that match. I saw positives. I, I, I tend to do that with these friendlies. I saw good things. They didn't get whacked by nothing. They didn't struggle to create chances, at least not in the first half. Things went to crap in the second half. You put that on Klinsman's shoulders. You put that on the change in formation. You put that on the, I, I don't know. How gassed the players were? Well, do you put that on Klinsman? How gassed they were? Is a fitness not there? there lots of things to consider. All right. I think that's going to do it for this Thursday edition of Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Let me remind you that uh, we are on iTunes. Well, that's the place. You go to Backheel.com to get the show and subscribe to iTunes. And you can go there to listen live, Backheel.com slash live. And I will address this. Lots of people out there asking about the YouTube feed. We are in a transitionary phase. Is that a word, transitionary? We are in a transitional phase when it comes to the studio here at Soccer Morning. Hopefully, YouTube will be back next week. I'm shooting for next week. So if you're a YouTube viewer, if you miss all the cool graphics that Trevor Hayward has put together, put so much time and effort into, I feel really bad that he hasn't been able to use them. All those bells and whistles. If you enjoy that stuff, or you just like seeing my pretty face, that should be back next week. But like I said, iTunes, give us a rating and a review. Help us out on that front. There are algorithms that use that information to uh, help the show out, get us up in front front and center. Uh, you can go to 3nilfc.com. It's the number 3, N-I-L-F-C.com, to buy your official Soccer Morning t-shirts. We partnered with those guys. Fantastic t-shirts. Backheel.com slash store. There's a soccer morning mug. Some really cool t-shirts. Really uh, clever stuff over there. Uh, Thank you to Leander Shalakins for joining us today. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Big show Friday. See you then. Bye.